We're going to eventually be in Colossians chapter 4 today. Let me begin, though, with a word of prayer for us. Lord of God, we are, as we sang, needful of your spirit to come and ignite our weary hearts. Lord, there's all kinds of baggage and areas of weakness that we bring this morning. And yet, Father, you have a word for us today. You have a message you want us to hear today. We ask that you would enable us, Lord, to see the magnificence of what you have called us to as a church, expressly, Lord, to spread the good news of Christ to lost, needy people. And that, Lord, this message would get our church so encouraged and excited to serve, Lord, that the city of Newport Ritchie would be forever changed by it, Lord. That your spirit would work in our hearts in such a way, Lord, that our zeal for you, our love for you, would be shown in great deeds of love and sharing and witness to those lost ones around us who so need Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. I am excited over what God is doing and I believe what he is about to do at Riverside Baptist Church. I think that he is already using the gospel of Jesus Christ to reorient our minds and our hearts. And I believe the seeds of spiritual growth are already being planted in our congregation in a way that I believe that fruit, great fruit, is on its way. And I believe that a field of souls is ready to be harvested by our church as we together shower the community of Newport Ritchie and all of the communities around it with the one and only saving message of Jesus Christ. I am excited about this. I know you are too. As I have said for several weeks now, we believe that this mission statement will guide us as we go forward that Riverside is a fellowship in Christ, joyfully committed to gathering for him, growing in him, and going with him. And this morning, we are going to consider our third core principle as we conclude this mission and vision series. And here it is up on the screen. Knowing that we go with him, we prayerfully attempt to build relationships with others, share Jesus with those who need him, and faithfully send and support those who have boldly gone out for the Lord. This principle, I have to admit, is perhaps the one I am most eager to relate. Because I am elated at the thought of God actually using us to reach his called out people in this community with his life-changing message. I, I long to see that. I know you do too, to see God work in that way. And today, we're, we're going to look at Colossians chapter 4 in a little bit. But first, I want to walk through three texts to help us as a church grasp God's incredible commission for his church and its overarching ambition, which is the worship of God by his people. 
So before we go to Colossians 4, look with me at the quintessential text of the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. Jesus has already been crucified. He has already been raised from the dead. He has already instructed his disciples in other things. And now he gives them the one overarching objective that they are to accomplish, their great commission. And he says to them in chapter 28, verse 18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." Jesus, he says, has been given all authority. Or as we saw a few weeks ago in Colossians chapter 1, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is supreme over absolutely everything, including Riverside Baptist Church. He, the resurrected King, and he is the one who is due all obedience and all and every worship. Furthermore, as king with all authority, he gives a command to his disciples, and thereby a command to his church, and thereby a command to us, to you as individuals, to you as families, and to us as a church. He commands his church to make disciples. Now, the statement, make disciples, is the primary command in these three verses. In this task, we use Christ's saving message to make people who are humble, trusting, growing, committed, and hopeful followers of King Jesus. So we are called, we are commanded to do something miraculous to go and turn rebels into followers of the king they've rebelled against. It is to make people who cling to Jesus through faith and obedience. And all of the other parts of verses 19 and 20, all of the other parts of this commission are connected to that main verb, that, that verb, make disciples. It's the only imperative or the only true command in those three verses. All of the other parts of this commission are participles. And in the Greek, when you have participles surrounding a verb like this, they are connected to it. In other words, he is saying to us, as you make disciples, go to people. In other words, he is saying, as you make disciples, baptize believers. In other words, he is saying, as you make disciples, Teach them to observe all the commands that Jesus has given. All of them hang on that one overarching command that the church of Jesus Christ has an objective, and that is to make followers of the king. So this command, or this commission, involves certain activities. It means that we will have to go to those who need to know Jesus. He says, 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, which means we will go far and wide. It also means we will go right next door because we've got a nation, we've got a people, we've got a group right around us. It also means we will have to baptize those who believe in Jesus as we instruct them in the importance of what Christ has done and what it means to follow him, we help them demonstrate their new lives through believer's baptism. That's part of making disciples. And it means that we teach them to observe all the things that Jesus has given to us in his word that we all might joyfully follow and obey our king. But then notice verse 20. Our strength is found in his abiding presence. He says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, or lo, as the old translation says, I am with you always to the end of the age. This week in my personal time with the Lord, I read from Deuteronomy 31 what Moses said to the people of Israel before Joshua took command of the people of Israel and the people of Israel entered the promised land and subdued all of the rebellious people who were therein. Moses said to them, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. And I thought to myself, Wow. When God is with his people, their objective is unstoppable. Even if that means conquering a foreign land with a lot of peoples who are a lot bigger and stronger. And now to his church, not by accident, Jesus says, I am with you always to the end of the age. So with him, we go. We go with him depending upon him prayerfully that he might strengthen us and give us courage and prepare hearts of those outside of this place to be turned to faith. We go with him and praise God because I can't imagine such a commission without his strength. This is a great promise he gives us here as he finishes this book and it provides us a great peace. So, great commission, Matthew 28. Let's see it again a little differently in the book of Acts, chapter 1. Go to the book of Acts, chapter 1. This is about that same time, except Jesus is about ready to ascend back up into glory with the Father. He is about to leave his disciples so that the Comforter, the Holy Spirit of God, could come upon his disciples. And he tells them this in Acts, chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So he tells us that the Spirit of God provides power to his church. The Spirit of God was going to come and he was going to provide power for his church. He says, You will receive power. 
the strength that we need has already been provided by Jesus who has sent his spirit to us. And if you don't know this, grab this great truth. If you know Jesus, God's spirit dwells in you. And God's spirit gives you all the power that you need to be his faithful witnesses on this earth. He has provided it. So we go with him whenever we go. He tells us that we are witnesses to Jesus. You will be my witnesses. Making disciples by going to people and by sharing good news with people and by baptizing people and by teaching people. And he tells us that our witness is to spread. Now the book of Acts is an, is an incredible book. He says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And beginning in Acts 2, we see his message spread throughout Jerusalem and then he tells us, and in all Judea and Samaria, and in Acts chapter 8, due to persecution, we see the gospel witness begin to spread to other parts of Judea, even into the realm of Samaria, where there were half Jews, half Gentiles, who were otherwise pushed away from the people of God, who are now brought near by the message of Jesus Christ. And then he says, and to the end of the earth, and in Acts chapter 13, Paul is commissioned by the church at Antioch to go and take the message of good news to Gentiles like me. And you, most of you, I would suppose. It starts at home and then it spreads out. As the gospel takes hold in their lives and in their community, it spreads further and further until it reaches the end of the earth. That's his objective. We reach Newport Ritchie not just because we reach Newport Ritchie, but we reach Newport Ritchie so that we can reach Pasco County, and we reach Pasco County so that we can reach Florida and this nation which is so broken, and this world which is so deficient on truth. And on that note, see the end result. Revelation chapter 7. Our end result our ultimate ambition, the reason why we do this, the reason why we fulfill this great commission. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Friends, the goal of disciple-making, the goal of the Great Commission is to make eternal worshipers of God from all peoples, all places, all races, all colors, all languages. That one day we stand in a congregation of peoples, plural, lifting up praises to God and to the Lamb who was slain on our behalf. Ultimately, evangelism and making disciples is all about magnifying God's glory by maximizing our joyful worship. When we evangelize, in the back of our minds, this idea should continue. 
we are going about the process of making new eternal worshipers of the king because that's what we're ultimately doing. We don't merely think about today, we think about the eternity in front. So with that as introduction, (laughs) go to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4, and read with me verses 2 through 6. Continue steadfastly in prayer, Paul writes, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let me give you three points, not long, with this text here. Number one, fulfillment of the Great Commission includes declaring the mystery of Christ. Paul went from city to city to city to city, declaring, he says, the mystery of Christ. And preaching this mystery about Christ landed him in the very prison in which he wrote this letter, as verse 4 tells us. So we've got to ask, this is a pretty big mystery that he's speaking about. What is this thing? What is this mystery of Christ that he relates? Let's let the text tell us. Back in chapter 1, verse 25, he says this to them. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for all ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So it had been hidden for ages. That's why it's a mystery. In some sense, the full understanding of this truth was not previously known though they longed to see it and longed to understand it, the word says. But now, God's saints in his church, the holy ones, have had it revealed to them. This mystery, he says, is rich in glory, he says. So this is something that has tremendous worth, tremendous value. This is important for us. And he tells us, There in verse 27, that it is Christ in you. This mystery is the priceless reality of Jesus Christ being in and with his people. Christ and believers providing them, he says, a hope of glory. It isn't just that Jesus is residing in us through his spirit, 
It's that his residency in us through his spirit provides us with a hope. And this kind of hope that it provides is a hope of glory. Namely, that one day I'm going to see him. I'm going to be like him. I'm going to talk like him. I'm going to act like him. I'm not going to be tempted anymore. I'm going to be like Jesus in all of that wonderful moral glory. He's doing that in us and he's perfecting it until that day. This is an enduring treasure and it does not disappoint. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This mystery, he tells us, is encouraging. And this mystery, it knits people together in love. It makes us love each other in a unique way that the world doesn't comprehend. And this mystery, he tells us, it provides us full assurance and understanding and knowledge. He gives us what we need to know. It tells us how we need to live. And he tells us here that this mystery is Christ. It's a person. And in Christ, he tells us, are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This mystery is Christ who is a treasure that unlocks all the other mysteries. He is the answer to our heart's very need. Oh, we have so many needs. We feel discontent. We have problems in relationships. We don't like our work. We hurt. Our body aches. And then Jesus comes and his person and his glory and his accomplishment on the gospel, they stand there for us and in him we find strength and peace and hope through all of these challenges. He answers that for us. All of the mysteries in the heavenly places are provided to us. So this mystery, this Jesus Christ, is Christ in us. It is Christ, our hope of glory. It is Christ, our wisdom. It is Christ, our salvation. Because chapter 3, verse 13, says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And verse 15 says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In our salvation, Jesus is victorious. So, in chapter 4, verse 3, when Paul talks about declaring the mystery of Christ, he is talking about the good news of what Jesus has accomplished and provides for his people. All that is Jesus and all that Jesus has done. And Paul has been going from city to city to city declaring good news about this Savior, and it has landed him in prison. 
praise God. And if we are to obey Jesus, we, Riverside, we too must proclaim Jesus to others that this mystery might also be revealed in their hearts. Second point this morning, when it comes to fulfilling the Great Commission, the fellowship of prayer is essential. He says in verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. We are to pray, as you know, for God's working. But we always know that. But I wonder, do we emphasize that? And do we really believe that? And do we really practice that? Steadfastly, with endurance and patience and thankfulness, we are to commune with God in prayer. Not just bringing a laundry list to him, but commune with him in prayer. Believing that he both answers our prayers and that he always answers them correctly, even when it may not seem like it. And furthermore, as verse 3 tells us, we are to pray for God's work in others. With each other, we are to pray for God's work in each other. He says, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word. Paul himself requested prayer from the Colossians as he shared the mystery of Christ. And prayer, as you, as you fully know, prayer is certainly to be done individually, but we do misunderstand prayer if we fail to grasp that it has an important communal component. It is to be done together. When it comes to evangelistic success especially, it is vital that God's people pray with and for one another. The guy who taught me all about evangelism, a fellow by the name of Chuck, he, one of the things he so, he so importantly taught me is that when he is evangelizing people, he makes sure that he has already talked to several people to have them praying ahead of time. When he, when he goes to preach on a Sunday, if that's what he's doing, he's got people who have been set aside specifically to pray for him while he's preaching. If he's going and knocking on doors, because that's his method, he has people who are praying for him, either back at the church or in their homes. And generally, he has a couple of guys, one who is about 20 years older than him, and one who is about 15 years younger than him, who every single day, they have made the promise, the commitment to pray for Chuck, that he would have open doors and boldness to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he does this because he believes in the truth that we must have people praying for us if we are to be effective evangelistically. And when I hear what he does, and I look at Colossians chapter 4, verse 3, and I say, that's exactly what I should be doing. That's exactly what we should be doing. We are to plead with God for open doors together. And that's one of the reasons why I think, I think, can I say it again, that our small groups here at Riverside are so important because it provides a natural locale, a natural group where we can have those kinds of relationships where we're praying for each other, not just about the hip surgery, as important as that is, not just about the difficult week or the problem with the vehicle or the trouble at work, as important as those things are, but we are praying with each other about John and Susan and Eric and Samantha, people who need to know Jesus Christ as so-and-so is trying to reach out to them. That is the word of God in community seeking to evangelize the lost. And I think that's where we need to go. 
we are to plead with God together for open doors. In verse 3, he tells us, he asks them to pray that he would have open doors. And I think it's very interesting that a man who is in a locked prison cell asks Christian brothers and sisters to pray that doors would be open. And, and he wanted, it is clear, something far more than a release from his physical confinement. He wanted open doors to people's hearts because they're not unlocked naturally. They are only unlocked supernaturally through the work of the Spirit. Paul got that, so he asked for prayer. He wanted God's Holy Spirit to go before him, preparing the way for gospel truth that he might be effective. Paul's like a lot of us. He doesn't like banging his head against the wall. He doesn't like doing something when he knows there aren't going to be any results. He wants to be effective. He is profoundly practical in this request. He wants to be effective in his evangelism. So he asks them to do the thing that he cannot do. He asks them to pray, to ask God to do the thing that he cannot do, which is to open up people's hearts for good news. And in verse 4, he asks them to pray that he would have clarity of teaching. It says, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So he wanted the message to be understood. He understood that marbles can be in the mouth sometimes, and we don't always say things the way we intend, and it comes out wrong. He wants actual clarity of speech in teaching people. He wanted to speak in wisdom just as he, saw, just as he ought to speak so that people would hear and understand and believe he understands that though God is fully sovereign in the gospel proclamation process and in the process of faith, that man has a part to play. And God wants us to go and approach it with the most wisdom we possibly can so that people will hear us speak with clarity. It's why it's important when a preacher preaches, he thinks hard through it. And it's why it's, hard, why it's important when you go and share the gospel that you think hard through it what you're going to say. Although no doubt God sometimes will give us just amazing opportunities when we haven't had the chance to even think about it. He wanted the inarticulate mud in his mouth to be removed. Have you ever, have you ever thought that way? Have you ever wanted to be able to speak a little bit more clearly, especially when it came to spiritual things? He asked them to pray about this. We too must pray for each other for open doors and clear speech that we might be bold to reach this community. Third point, when it comes to fulfilling the Great Commission, our method is deeply relational. Look at verses 5 and 6 again. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now, we need to ask for boldness and for clarity because relationships are natural points of fear for us, right? In fact, I've seen some studies of, that ask people, why don't you evangelize more? And one of the top ones, as you can imagine, is simply, I'm afraid of what people will say. When people are just honest about it, and I, that's mine, I'm afraid of what people will say. I'm afraid of how they will respond so we need boldness, we need clarity in our relationships, and that's not easy. Paul, he didn't have it easy either. He asked for it. And in 
Ephesians chapter 6, he actually explicitly asked that church to pray that he would have the word boldness so that he wouldn't be a coward when it came to sharing. Paul asked for that, the guy who started church after church after church. It is not easy to overcome our anxiety and bring the message of Christ to those around us. We need spiritual strength and we need faith in an overarching truth that God is powerful and God is with us and that God knows what he's doing. But we must walk and we must talk, as verses 5 and 6 say, wisely in our relationships in this world because Christ's reputation is ultimately at stake. Remember, we are declaring the mystery of Christ himself. In a sense, with our every word and our every action that we perform in this life, we are either testifying, testifying rightly to King Jesus or we are testifying badly to King Jesus. And understand that the world is watching us. Last night, I felt like I was a little bit too loud with how I responded to one of my children when we got home. And I thought, you know what? That was kind of loud. That probably didn't sound very good if one of the neighbors was outside. And I had to, I had to quickly confess it, that my heart wasn't great at that moment. And I, I prayed that God would not hurt my testimony to any of them across the way and just raising my voice a little. And I, I struggle with that. And, and I know we all have different ways that our testimony is a struggle for us and how we respond to people and the things we say or do. But we must understand that they are watching. And we must walk in wisdom before those who are outside of the church, outside of Christ. And this means we are to be careful with our Christian testimonies. We must pick our battles with each other and with people judiciously because they're watching. And we must be thoughtful with our words towards each other and towards others because they're watching. There's lots of reasons why we should do those things, but one of them is that they're watching. I wonder, if I may humbly suggest, I wonder how many of our testimonies are ruined because of abrasive political commentaries that we feel we necessarily have to ooze out of our mouths and social media. I wonder how many of us have just blown it. Or how many unbelievers are turned off to Christ when they, make mount, they see us making mountains out of molehills, arguing and separating and dividing over minor things, or when they see that we cannot forgive or we cannot forbear with one another. You know, friends, they are watching us. If we are to build relationships that result in lives changed, we must reveal the wise ways that God has already changed us. We must furthermore seize the opportunity in the time allotted to us here on earth. He says, making the best use of the time or making the most out of what we've been given or, in other words, not wasting it. Not wasting it. We each get one life to serve or not serve this king and using it to reach outsiders who need Jesus Christ is a fabulous path of joy and a wonderful way to spend those years that you go on this earth. 
1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19, if you remember, Paul says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? People. People. Not wasting your time by spending your time on people. First, the person of God in your relationship with him. Second, and the people of his church building them up. And third, and the people who need to know Christ that they might have your joy. So according to verse 6, we must approach these relationships, all relationships, with grace and truth and care. To have gracious speech is to have sweet speech or beautiful speech. Not because we're so incredibly articulate or intelligent or have been so well trained or have so much theological understanding, but because of tenderness and respect and love. What led me to Jesus Christ was not the fact that my parents were so knowledgeable about the gospel. It's that my parents loved me and they made it clear they didn't want me to go to hell. They didn't want me to live a life that was without Christ. They wanted me to know his joy. This goes without saying maybe, but this speech is to be seasoned with salt, he says here. Salt was used as a descriptive word in that day to signify wisdom. This was to be a beautiful, edifying speech that had a powerful, helpful effect on people. It implies that words are chosen judiciously and that when they are spoken, they promote both truth and wisdom. So we care about our walk. We have concern about our testimony. And we desire for gracious, wise speech to enable us to speak to the lost just as we ought to speak. Just as Paul wanted to speak. Just as he ought to speak. So here is an important implication in this text. Friends, we need each other to do this, don't we? We need each other. We need each other's prayers, as I've already mentioned, and we need each other's prayers desperately if we are ever to be effective. And we need each other's accountability so that we might help each other recognize when we're not trusting God and areas in which we need to turn from that we might trust him more fully and serve him more fully. And we need each other's encouragement for all of the times that we just blow it. We need each other in this. So once again, core principle number three. Knowing that we go with him, we prayerfully attempt to build relationships with others, share Jesus with those who need him, and faithfully send and support those who have boldly gone out for the Lord. So this is where we want to try and lead over the next several years based upon this conviction. Our aim is, as we've mentioned, to produce mature disciples through relentless gospel application, to stimulate a passion for biblical truth among our people, to inspire genuine fellowship among our members, and to reach the lost by concentrating our evangelism in our own backyard. We want the gospel to go to the nations. But over the next few years, we want to focus on taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to our own backyard, starting in our own Jerusalem, 
that it might spread to our Judea and our Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. And our focus is that we will go with Jesus. Our plan is to have us go with Jesus by seizing the opportunities in our own very much broken backyard. Friends, as, as we've talked about individually as, as group, as a church together at different times, there are many upon many spiritually needy people who work and reside and play within just a few blocks of our church building. And when that structure just a block away gets built, there's going to be a whole lot more. We believe that these people nearest to us should be a principal focus in our efforts to reach the lost as a church. Now, please, if this is popping into your brain, I want to try to answer it. Please understand, we know that we must always remain sensitive to God's directing, that he could change plans, and we will obviously take any opportunities to go with him that he provides. But our target as he's given us wisdom and discernment to think in light of Scripture, our target will be the people right here around us. Because we must have a strategy. We can't do everything, especially as a small church. But what we can do, what we can do as a small church is be faithful with what God has already given to us. And what he has given is a prime setting to minister good news to many spiritually needy people within just a few blocks of our place. So part of our plan is to utilize the key locations near us and to leverage the outreach opportunities that God has put right here in our midst. One wonderful example, Sims Park. Families are at play. If you've ever been there in the evenings, really it's any time of day, but especially at evenings, dozens upon dozens of families of all different colors and stripes and all different types are all there playing. And I see them talking with each other. And it's amazing that it's almost a place of community for many people in the evenings to go when it's not so hot. To go, if that ever happens here, to go and, and build relationships with moms and dads and kids and grandpas and grandmas, providing opportunities to meet people and minister to them with a, within two blocks of our church. How dare we not have any kind of outreach there? And this place also has frequent festivals where thousands come from all around the area, including singles and families and all ages. Certainly, we think at least, we can provide some creative ways to utilize such events and to build long-term relationships with people through these and spread the good news of Jesus Christ. If we're two blocks from a ministry that brings in tens of thousands of people, Let's start using the brains that God has given to us and discerningly find some ways that we can go to them with the gospel. It's not just let them go by. Also, due to our location, we can emphasize and even expand our current ministries, especially those to families. Awana is one such ministry that can be such a great tool for kids and parents alike. Perhaps we have only scratched the surface of the families that we could connect with right here in the neighborhoods close by. I wonder how many don't even know about it. 
as a way to get kids in and maybe do some kind of teaching for adults to help them get connected and administer the good news to them. Oh, we can be creative in these ways. And we plan to be creative as we think through how we can best reach people here in Newport Ritchie. And as we go with Jesus, our emphasis will always be relationship building. It will always be relationship building, which means it's going to require you. You. It will require you. We are going to continually encourage each and every one of us toward building gospel relationships inside the network of friends and neighbors and family and co-workers that God has already put in our midst. We're not averse to having an event here and there to help us build such relationships. But by and large, we believe our church will see people long-term, most effectively saved as each of us invests in the relationships that God has already provided. Friends, this, to be plain, will not work if you have expectations on me or one of our other pastors to be the people who do the outreach. It will not work that way, not long-term. It'll burn people out. It'll lead to a disjointed church. But this will work when all of us participate in a culture of disciple-making where each and every one of us has to role to play in reaching people for Christ. Recognizing our gifts, recognizing our physical abilities, and each of us playing our part to reach this community. The days must be over when we only think internally, and the days must start and continue where we look outside these walls. And we must all do it together. Our primary tool is we want to not only reach people within a few blocks of our church, but reach people where we gather in any place. One of our primary tools is going to be our small groups, once again. We don't make disciples very well on our own. And I don't think the scriptures attest to people making disciples very well on their own. But when groups of Christians work together, creatively reach out together, and pray together, God works in mighty ways. And we want to do this with our groups. To make this a big part of our Riverside small group DNA, so to speak. Now, we definitely want our groups to be places where current church people can grow spiritually and are encouraged by the Bible and are strengthened with genuine fellowship. But we also believe that part of the spiritual growth that we desire is learning to look over the hedges and even to tear those hedges down. It's learning to work together even with all of our weaknesses and all of our baggage that we bring with each other into the effort to take the most joyful message that has ever been given to mankind, to mankind. There are all kinds of ideas we could suggest. I hate to even give any because I don't want you to think this is the blueprint, but I've been a part of barbecues that were used by small groups to reach the lost. I've seen them partner up with nearby schools in efforts to connect with families. I've seen small groups participate in local sports leagues as a way to get to know people and build relationships and share Christ. There's a plethora of different ideas we could all lay out. And we want to encourage creativity in our groups to do this. And as you can imagine, some of you numbers guys are already probably questioning, this will take some additional dollars to provide some of these ministries with what they need to go. 
And we hope to emphasize these things in the coming budget here very soon. So we ask that you would pray with us for God's provision, knowing that when God is behind an effort, when he is with his people, he always provides exactly what is needed in every single situation. Trusting him that if we're going to go bold and reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, something not many churches do very well, that if we're going to do that, that he's going to provide for it. So this is how we plan to lead. I don't think there's anything that's big or secretive that's overly shocking to you, but hopefully this is encouraging you to say, hey, there's some good things there that I want to get behind that. And in the coming months and years, we will work to have all of our current and future ministries in alignment with this vision and mission because we believe it's rooted in Scripture, it's rooted in God's will, and we want to try to flesh it out over this church. Riverside is a fellowship in Christ, joyfully committed to gathering for him, growing in him, and going with him. And we ask of you that you be ready and willing to take part in what God is already doing in our congregation and in what he's going to do going forward. That you take our gatherings seriously and that you trust the gospel to work as it's laid out week from week, text to text, worship service to worship service. And that you invest in a small group and be there when the church gathers around the word that we might grow together. And that you invest in the networks of people that God has already placed around you that they might see Christ in you and come to know him. So there it is. Elders, would you please come forward? My last ask of you is that you would pray. I've asked our leaders to come forward that we might pray that God would bless this, that this would truly be his will, that we as a church would be unified around his plan, that he would be magnified. Worship team, you can come on forward as well and get in position. Tim is going to lead us in a word of prayer. And Tim is going to ask God to bless this mission and vision going forward as we seek to be used by God at Riverside.